Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor, and today's guest is a very familiar voice, very familiar figure on the left to most of my audience. I've had him on several times. I'm actually having his son on, Toure Reed, next week. So, father first, Adolph Reed Jr., professor emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania, political scientist, leftist, socialist extraordinaire, uh, one of the founding members of the Labor Party, which is a really critical experience that we need to draw from in today's situation above all. Adolph, thanks for joining us. Hey, man, it's my pleasure, Adam. Thanks for having me. So uh, how are you holding up in this crisis? We got a lot going on, a lot on your plate. You've been a busy guy. You did a uh, one of these stay-at-home series lectures with your friends and comrades, Willie Leggett. And uh, Cedric Johnson, uh, yep. hosted by Michael Brooks, friend of the show, all friends of the show. Um, yep. so you- yeah, that was a lot of fun. And I mean, we're working with um, well, Willie and I, of course, we worked together um, a lot over the last 40 years, but oh, plus. But um, you know, he's lead organizer now in the Debs Jones Douglas Institute's uh, and uh, the Medicare for All South Carolina campaign that I've also been w- working on as an organizer. So that's another thing, like we're trying to figure out how to uh, make our moves to phase three of the organizing projects while under lockdown. So, yeah, yeah it's got to be frustrating. But I mean, that's, you know, talk about a snake pit. You know, you guys, you know, you're you are the elder statesman of the socialist left. I mean, that as a compliment. You know, you guys have been around. You guys have done a lot and achieved a lot. You know, at this point in your life, you know, you could go anywhere. You could go to Southern California. You could go to <laughs> Brooklyn. You could organize there. You know, you'd have a lot of successes, a lot of victories, but where'd you go? You went to South Carolina, <laughs> you know, that, that snake pit. And we all know all too well what yeah. happened to Bernie, the way that he was knifed by some of the political elites right. uh, and leading up to that, that, you know, so, so why South Carolina? I know you have a long history there. Willie, of course, does as well. Cedric himself, as he's talked about on the show, is also from the South, also a Louisiana guy. Um, right. You know, so it's you're you're not you guys aren't shirking the responsibility of going into the places where the left has relatively little structural strength right now. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, yeah, the fact that the left doesn't have you know, structural strength is like a double edged sword. But uh, we started working down in South Carolina. Of course, I had a little bit of a history down there going back back to the early 70s. But uh, we started working with the Labor Party down in South Carolina in the late 90s when Donna DeWitt who was at that point president of the state AFL-CIO, actually brought the state federation into the Labor Party as an affiliate. And they were the first and only state fed that affiliated with the Labor Party. And we worked closely with them. Um, Anthony Mazaki, um, their founding brother, basically spent spent a lot of time down there. And uh, we all did. I mean, we kind of kicked off the our free higher education campaign. I mean, like you kind of joke that, that the Sanders campaign took about half of its platform from the Labor Party, which is great. But I mean, that was our project initially, and we kicked that off there. And we and we even won a ballot line for a Labor Party in South Carolina. And we've worked closely with the state Fed, with the Longshoremen, and uh, the new president of the state AFL-CIO, Charles Brave Jr., is a Longshoreman out of Charleston. Is absolutely great. I mean, he's been like a progressive stalwart down there forever like he's worked with us for as long as we've been there and we was thought well you know i mean we uh, wanted to do um, a statewide field-based organizing project around 
Medicare for all on the based on the premise that this is an issue that would resonate with working people. And it resonates with uh, the working people because not because they can see that it's fiscally uh, responsible or because of moral commitments that they have to take care of the least of us. So, so they don't really need testimony from other people but because they, they know, based on their own experience, that the current system is irrational, inadequate, and criminal. And what they want is to see a better alternative and you know, to figure out a way to win it, right? a path toward, toward trying to win it. And um, you know, between December, uh, when we kicked the campaign off in a serious way, like in full gear, and the primary at the end of February, more than 13,000 South Carolinians signed pledges saying that they wanted to vote only for for uh, the Medicare for All candidates. And the same thing is true. Like you could have done the same thing like in a lot of places around the country, right? uh, but I think in most places around the country. But we did did have you know the combination of knowing the state very well. And once Willie, who uh, retired, I think a year or so before I did, agreed to come on as lead organizer, they just started going gangbusters because he's got contacts across the state that are deep and broad. Yeah, so it's pretty exciting. Yeah. Uh, you, one of your uh, other former brothers in the Labor Party, uh, Mark Dudzik, was heading up the national organizing for Medicare for All campaign as well. That Mark's a guy that, uh, man, is long, long overdue as a guest here on this show. I, I'd love yeah, to have him right. on and talk about his experience with the Labor Party. And now that the Bernie Sanders campaign is winding down, that's definitely a case study that we need to start looking at. You know, I, 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 I tweeted out on the interwebs earlier today that, you know, with the, the host of some of these Bernie for, uh, you know, college university for Bernie groups tweeting out and giving the mainstream libs all, all types of uh, vapors that they will not be endorsing Biden in this yeah. campaign. You can see the fault lines developing of the thing that you and I have both been working for. You've been working for for a very long time since before the 90s, but certainly in earnest in the 90s with the labor parties. You're seeing. Uh, three relatively distinct political formations coming up in, in the United States. It just so happens that two of those three formations happen to be in, around, or adjacent to the Democratic Party. And for the first time, we're seeing something similar to, you know, say a, a more kind of European parliamentary system arising where you've got your conservatives, you've got your Tories, you know, you've got your Lib Dems, you got your right. liberals. Your classic liberals, you know, your pro-capitalist kind of uh, post-aristocratic liberal class, and then you've got your labor party, right? And, yeah. and you're starting to see this. Of course, it's young. It's uh, you know, kind of uh, going through some serious growing pains. We don't know what's going to happen with the uh, Trump derangement syndrome that happens, you know, in the course of a general election. We also don't know what happens in terms of people being nimble and agile enough to pull the lever in a swing state to keep a Republican out of out of office if necessary, but still maintain the pressure and still do all the things that need to be done in order to establish that distinct labor sector of, of the democratic party, you know, marginalia, whatever, inter out, inner outer inside, outside political battle. It's going to need to be waged there. Right. Um, talk to us a little bit about some of the fault lines you see developing here, because, you know, as, as they say, this is definitely not your first rodeo. Well, true. But I tell you, right, like I often say that um, by training, I'm a political scientist and we work much better at predicting what's already happened than we do at, at uh, forecasting what's going to happen. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Like, it's a tough, tough moment. I mean, you know, when you think about it, Adam, I'm not even 100 percent certain that we're going to have an election in November. And I know that might sound a little alarmist, if not conspiratorial, but 
when I look at the larger picture, and I've been thinking like this for a while and talking friends um, and with experience elsewhere, too, that when you look at what happened to the pink tide in Latin America and the emergence of authoritarian neoliberal regimes around so much of the rest of the world, Hungary, India, Ukraine, right? All the stands, basically, as I said someplace, like every stand you can think of, except Stan Laurel and Stan Musial for the old people on the audience. Uh, but what this might all add add up to, and this is one reason that I'm waiting for the new Panitch, Gindin, and I think Meyer book to come out, because what this might all add up to is that what we summarize as neoliberalism is losing its capacity to disorganize the working class, right? For a variety of reasons, both uh, immaterial and ideological, as well as institutional. And then, you know, their arrogance has something to do with it too, maybe. But what happens then? I mean, it seems to me there are only two directions you can move from that, right? One of them is toward um, a social democratic agenda or something like that. And the other is toward authoritarianism. And I think well, granted, uh, even the Financial Times was uh, crying crocodile tears about inequality a few days ago. Uh, you can expect to see see that kind of thing happen from some of the thought leaders of the ruling class in the depth of the crisis. But you also know, having been through this before, I mean, most of your listeners have been through this before in 08, that as soon as the crisis is over, the crocodile tears dry up and it's you know back to extracting surplus value, basically, in one way or another. If we are in a moment like that, right, if we are in a moment at which American or the bipartisan neoliberal consensus in the U.S. is no longer capable or is, has diminished in its abilities to disorganize the working class, then it could be that all bets are off, right? I mean, like, we've, like, things could be up for grabs politically here, and you know, that could sound exciting, except we're really badly outgunned, outmanned. Institutionally, they're a hell of a lot stronger. And as is typically the case, they know where they're trying to go, and our side doesn't. So it, so it could be ugly. Or we're not willing to, to do what it would take to get there in order to making sort of uh, priorities and concessions and, and thinking right. about this strategically rather than just a, a litany of 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 the horror show that you know that uh, checking all the right boxes and so on before we move forward you know as I, I was thinking to myself you know speaking of panich uh, panich is obviously also um the editor of the socialist register they did a a volume of that register a few years ago now maybe 4 or 5 years ago now on the rise of the far right right and yeah th- and at the time i thought it was a little histrionic at the time i thought that there was a kind of um a cultural cosmopolitanism right. that would ultimately save us Right. Of course, not save us from the, the barbarism of neoliberalism, but save us from the worst aspects of authoritarianism. But right. that looks to be the circle that this authoritarianism is going to have to square. Is, well, it, can can we see a certain kind of woke, a, 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 a woke authoritarianism emerge out of this COVID crisis, out of this, this you know, impending economic political crisis? If they're able to, to, to have – to get on board these kind of cultural tastemakers – in in the the you know professional managerial class, if you're able to get them on board for for a much more draconian authoritarian project, we're all fucked. Because really, you know, oh, you yeah, say what totally. you want about cultural cosmopolitanism, and we're going to spend the rest of the show knocking it. But that's the only thing holding us, you know, keep holding. You know, it's a little Dutch boy with the, with the finger in the dam, so to speak. <laughs> the yeah. left doesn't have the kind of power to, to to stave that off right now. 
No, no, uh, no, absolutely not. And it's interesting that you mentioned that number of the register because I made a conscious effort to pick it up when I was in Philly and to bring it down here with me uh, because it's one of the things I want to spend a little bit of time revisiting to help make sense of the moment that we're in. Yeah. Orban, you know, is, is a person who they were keeping very close tabs on in Hungary. Right. Uh, he was just he was just on the rise when that was being written and almost everything they were worried about with respect to him. He and his party and his forces has come to pass. I mean, he's taking yeah. advantage of this crisis to produce a permanent state of emergency. Um, it's it's quite it's pretty dire. It's pretty dire. Yeah. Uh, no, looking away, like the best best thing that we've got going for us is that Trump is a fucking arrogant retard. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, with no. Well, I have no attention span and like and the kind of narcissism that makes him stand out as a liar and a knave, but it also just kind of keeps him from following through on anything. Yeah. 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 And and that's the best we have going for us. And, you know, the idea that Biden's going to beat him. I, <clears throat> I mean, I don't know. Like, you never know. Right. Uh, the bottom could fall out of things completely. Like if Trump tries to follow through on this. May 1st, uh, the restart the economy again thing, and the medical crisis then um, kicks up into higher gear even, then you might imagine some version of what actually kind of frightened me during the campaign when people like uh, Bloomberg and Thomas Friedman and others were calling for what is basically a bipartisan national unity government, right? And you can see the pretext for that, you can see how it happens, and you know who's going to get rounded up uh, when it does happen. Yeah. Well, that's some dire, that's some dire predictions, you know. But you're a guy and, who, who's like been. It won't be the sisters of uh, the Alpha Kappa Alpha. So. <laughs> no, it won't. No, it won't. Uh, you've, been, you've been making some of those predictions for a long time. A long time, though. You know, you came up on. We we're talking about this off air on Rising with uh, Crystal Ball and Cigar and Jetty. You predicted. You know that uh, that it, it would be possible if Bernie Sanders looked unstoppable. That uh, certain fractions of the, the deep state or, or the ruling class could kill him, and a lot yeah. of people kind of scoffed at that and said, "Ah, he's just oh, yeah, being no, a crank. He's being histrionic, whatever have you." But but you look to Central and South America for clues about right. what a ruling class with its back against the wall is willing to do, and it's something to think about. And I'm not really inclined to be the last motherfucker looking for a train out of Germany. Right? So, <laughs> but, but I was joking with somebody about this. That the nice thing about it, though, or one thing we may have going for us is that all of, uh, I mean, the anarchoids and I mean, the internet, I mean, leftists are always pontificating and performing their re- revolutionary politics might get swept up in the first wave. So the rest of us <laughs> might, might have time to grab a toothbrush and get to Canada. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. The 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 more emojis in your Twitter profile, probably I would say the more under threat you are from that first wave. So if right. you guys want to survive the first one and make it up 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 to the great north, uh, you know, um, although we can't be so sure, there's a there's a subtle fascism and the liberalism in in Canada that I experienced that I was completely oh, shocked by. Yeah, yeah, completely appalled by. They they didn't have even even a mealy mouthed uh, kind of mainstream sanitized civil rights movement up there. So what passes is pretty uh, astonishing for for uh, yeah discourse anyway so a lot to talk about i'd love to sit here and pick your brain about the sanders campaign we should definitely we're going to come back to this and weave it weave things here there and everywhere but sure we're here in the midst of my anti-essentialism series part two and you were a vital inspiration 
uh, if not the inspiration for that first anti-essentialism series. I'm super proud of that. I'm uh, honored that you you were able to come on and, and uh, happy that this show and, and just a couple others were able to kind of popularize your ideas to to a brand new audience. It's one of my one of the things I'm most proud of, and it really had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with you, but it's one of the things I'm most proud of that uh, the DPS has has been able to do is to put anti-essentialism back on the map. Uh, this kind yeah, of race that, reduction. That's great. I think it's important, obviously. And uh, you know, you've written quite a bit about the COVID crisis, the coronavirus response, and the way that this kind of uh, vulgar uh, pseudo biological race reductionism is coming back around again. It reminds me of a of an article that uh, came out about ten years ago, and it was a study. And the study came out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. I believe it was Harvard University, but really it could have come out of any of the Ivy League institutions because uh, they're 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 pretty uh, prolific at these types of studies. Uh, the study found that blacks are more likely. Uh, the study com- was comprised of 2,500 middle-income African-American families, and they found that when compared to other ethnic groups in the same income bracket, blacks were up to 23% more likely. It also discovered that <laughs> it also discovered that uh, women of African descent were no more or less prone than Latinas. Right. <laughs> uh, also, furthermore, Asian Americans. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, that's the the uh, the, uh, the quote breaks off there. So anyway, that's that's an Onion article. Yeah, yeah, that's a great article too. Yeah, yeah uh, a very poorly delivered joke. I'm not a comedian. My timing is terrible. But you get the you get the <laughs> shtick, right? The shtick is that. A uh, new study finds blacks more likely, less likely. Women of color are more likely, less likely than, you know, it, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a genre that has been perfected by a certain strata of the professional managerial class who've made careers on uh, kind of this racial disparity narrative, something that I've talked about with uh, your, your students, Adolf, something I've talked about with you, your colleagues and comrades and co-thinkers on the show, Cedric Johnson, people will not be um, – if you've missed those shows with Cedric Johnson, of course, definitely go back and and, uh, and listen to these things in terms of the fact that race does not constitute a political constituency. That should be tattooed on the foreheads of, of uh, right. nearly every leftist. Right. Yeah. But you lament in a recent piece that was published in Common Dreams. Uh, they titled A Disparity Ideology, Coronavirus, and the Danger of the Return of Racial Medicine. You lament the fact that this genre of blacks or African-Americans either – being more likely or less likely than in a lot of comical ways. This genre has been perfected by the likes of uh, columnist Charles Blow, academic Ibram X. Kendi, and others. Kianga Yamada-Taylor has chimed in there as well with some kind of spurious concerns and worries that uh, coronavirus is targeting uh, African-Americans explicitly and that we need more data uh, to, to find out kind of what's really going on. Um, right. How did you first come across this old trope rearing its ugly head again? You make some really critical distinctions here, and and reveal that uh, you know this trope is is the very definition of racism, and that's something yeah. that really confounds yeah. the left in a lot of ways. And I hate that we got to keep saying this shit over and over again, Adolf. But but here we are. Oh uh, yeah, well, you and me both, man. I mean, so like I've been on for a good while. I mean, for well over a decade. Like I've been on on a listserv uh, called the Spirit of 1848, which is a kind of progressive public health I mean, listserv. It's really very good. There's a lot of good stuff on it. But um, what happened was I noticed early, well, uh, about a week and a half or so ago, maybe, I don't know, a couple of postings that expressed concern about blacks being you know, particularly vulnerable. 
And what concerned me about it, and, and I mean, I, I um, um, what became the article uh, it began as a comment that I made on the listserv because what concerned me about it was that was yeah, like the the longstanding trope of relative vulnerability, insofar as it wasn't clearly rooted in a socioeconomic understanding, could you know, ran the danger of being another call or of you know justifying another call call for something like race medicine which was common in the 19th century and early 20th century and ironically had something to do with the emergence of public health as a field in the US like in the late 19th early 20th centuries you connected uh, you know to urbanization and anxieties about immigration overcrowding then hysteria about contagion or concern about contagion uh, was as likely as not to take a racialized form. So my my intervention was intended mainly like to call for caution in pushing like a racial understanding about who is most at risk for COVID nineteen and for bad outcomes from COVID nineteen. And the funny thing is um, that uh, it seemed almost like as soon as I published that um, you know, essay, the floodgates opened and shit was coming from everywhere. And uh, one of the cautions that I made, I was tied up with a specific reference to some of the medical mischief uh, that was associated with race medicine, like in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And sure enough, we find out that uh, a senator from here, Bill Cassidy, who's also a physician, you know, after the first wave of Blacks Have It Worse, Blacks Have It Worse, weighed in, and of course, he's a Republican asshole, but uh, he weighed in, and I'm sorry for the redundancy, but he weighed in <laughs> to say that blacks have it worse because of some combination of their bad habits and what's in effect and inferior racial biology. And, you know, I don't like to do the I told you sort of thing, but but I did about this. I said, see, all right, so like I said, this shit was going to happen. And like, here it is, a fucking day or two later, and it's happened. But it doesn't matter because it doesn't slow slow down the train. And um, another friend of mine who's a physicist, actually, who I've known since he was a graduate student and who's uh, among his many great, great accomplishments was uh, he emailed me on the morning of the Million Man March in, uh, in Chicago and said to me, so I don't know, like, is this just just me or what? But this doesn't it seem like the first time a large group of people came together to protest against themselves. Well, anyway, and he has a nail on the head. But anyway, <laughs> look, I mean, he just said to me today that he had a conversation with, I think, a physicist, another black physicist about the disparities trope. And he sent this person like an article. I think he sent it to a few people, um, an article that was just in the Times or the Washington Post a few days ago that focuses on class, right? Class and income inequality as what what's the real dividing line here? And my friend said to me that most of the responses that he got back were from people who, who said, well, but the article doesn't say anything about racism. Mm. And you can't say, well, so I it's said- It's a trap. That, as, as the great Admiral Akbar once said, uh, it's a trap, isn't it? Yeah. That race, yeah. <laughs> racial right. discourse. Right. There's just no way to, to even bring it up without being immediately ensnared in what you've called the neoliberal trajectories of no, no, race totally. discourse. Yeah. Because look, I mean, it, it, it's like, uh, because on one level, it's a, a simple taxonomic issue, right? That if, as people will say when pushed, 
the factors or the concrete factors that account for what seem to be disproportionately high morbidity among people classified as black are factors that are either directly or indirectly linked to or rooted in poverty and or I mean economic inequality and the social sequelae from that. Well, then that is, you would think that that we would understand that to be a subset of the larger taxon of economic inequality. So if you point to the larger taxon, then by definition, the larger taxon subsumes and presumes the smaller taxon, right? Because that's just the way the fucking taxonomic thinking works, right? But obviously, it doesn't satisfy people because there's a different kind of ideological objective and it's a class-driven ideological objective. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, just, you got to read the piece here, uh, the pieces that you cite in the very beginning of your, of your article, you know, you talk about, uh, Elizabeth Warren is guilty of, of making some tweets about being concerned about the racial makeup of, of COVID right. victims. Uh, Ayanna Presley, the fourth kind of, uh, the, the wokest of, of the squad, right. <laughs> not, not so social democratic. It turns out in, in her economic policies always. Yeah, and, never was actually. Yeah, never was. Yeah, as, as I think you've raised on the show. She was. Uh, she had a, a, a challenger hack. to her left in the primaries, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. No, she's just another hack, uh, hack Democrat. And you'd think after eight years of Obama, more people would be able to make that distinction, right? Uh, you know, to figure out that being progressive is like not an epidermal condition. Yeah, but well, anyway. Yeah. Well, 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 we gotta we gotta go through the gender, the magical thinking about gender. Right. Now, yeah. right? Because we've, we've gone yeah. through the magical thinking when it comes to respect to melanin, and now we got to do it with melanin and it's got to be intersectional here. We got to dismantle right. the magical thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Intersectionally, well, Adolf. Uh, yeah, it's going to take you, time. Like, if I hadn't uh, retired, well, when I did, if I'd stayed, stayed for another year, I would have changed my bio on the faculty webpage to say that my work occurs at the intersection of 34th and, and the market in, in Philadelphia. That's where my office was. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so we got to, we got to do it, it. Yeah. We got to dismantle this stuff and somebody write that paper about how, how the magical <laughs> thinking is going to be uh, dismantled intersectionally. Yeah. But yeah, you cite a bunch of uh, comments about some legislators being concerned about the racial makeup of the victims. And we just don't have the data to prove this. And of course, as you rightly mentioned, and some of the other people that, uh, that you cite to be fair to them also mentioned like, ah, we got to be careful about posting racial data when it comes to this stuff. Nobody really wants to be uh, collecting that information when it comes to uh, victims of, of outbreaks and pandemics. But, you know, you cite an uh, academic here who is, is a particularly egregious, um, a guy who is at uh, American University, Ibram X. Kendi. He's a right. director of he's just wait for it. He's the director of anti-racist research and policy center at American University. I don't you know, um, that's that's an interesting title that could only emerge in the wake of this kind of uh, PMC neoliberal race reductionist uh, zeitgeist. But oh, man, no shit. But yeah. uh, if there ever was a title. But, you know, so there's a line in this piece here. And and it, it almost I mean, it writes itself. He, he It's almost as though he's uh, lampooning himself. Based off of, uh, I don't know, a chapter or an essay that you wrote that you compiled in class notes back in 99. <laughs> okay. He says, without racial data, you know, and I'm, let me paraphrase now, uh, we can't ever know whether equity exists, uh, you know, within the ethnic and racial groups among the victims. Mm. And that's his real concern. Right. Is that how do we know right. that everybody's dying and suffering equally? Right. We don't know. And that's the most important thing 
that he wants to achieve in his piece. I have, I'm left to believe. I mean, maybe that's not fair. Maybe it's not fair to suggest that he has no broader aims, but I'm left to believe that he is at least on the surface. Okay. With the, the, the possibility, the prospect that all ethnic and racial groups are being infected and are ultimately dying equally of this virus. Now, if that is not just a, a, a metaphor for the entire discourse of neoliberal, you know, uh, race reductionism, I don't know what is. Because mm-hmm. you'd think he'd very quickly transition and say, in fact, nobody should be dying from this thing. In fact, right. everybody should well, be tested. Right. That's right. And in fact, <laughs> we need to – this is why we need universal policies because equalizing the racial and ethnic distribution of suffering is not enough. We right. can do better as a society and that's why we need Medicare for all. But of well, course, he didn't do that, did he? Right. Uh, uh, in fact, health care, Medicare for all, not a, not a single universal social policy is to be found in this entire long and – Rather self-indulgent piece in the Atlantic, pen, uh, published by uh, by Professor Kendi. Yeah. Well, I mean, let me say first of all that uh, this is probably twenty years ago, maybe more. And granted, there was scotch involved, but uh, <laughs> but uh, Professor Leggett and I were talking, and he uh, just kind of broke the conversation for a second, and he asked me, he said, "Say." Have you ever known anyone with dreadlocks and good politics? Uh, and I thought, no, I haven't. He said, yeah, I haven't either. <laughs> and uh, and I just say that you know, Professor Kendi, as I recall, has really long, long dreadlocks. He does. I'm actually looking at a, a headshot of the of the man uh, right now as we speak. Okay. I you know, well, I feel I, I know. feel the need to to uh, do some damage control over what you've just said. But you know what? I'd be willing <laughs> to bet. Uh, quite a bit here that uh, that I don't have a single you know listener with dreadlocks, so we're in the clear. We're good. Okay. Uh, okay. So, uh, but, but but yeah, I mean, it's you know, there's there's a lot to say. I mean, it, well, but that's what's especially telling about this, though. Though I think you put your finger on it, right because in, here here we are in the context of a global pandemic, right? And even in that context, it turns out that for a certain kind of woke ne- neoliberal, right. What matters isn't the large picture of the dynamics of inequality and how they play out, right? Uh, I mean, everybody who works in the service sector, right? Uh, I saw an article a couple of days ago indicating that Unite Here has lost about 95% of its membership, right? Right, because it casinos, hotels, right? Uh, healthcare workers, right? I mean, a group that we, we uh, that we work. Web in the South Carolina, uh, healthcare workers you united are in a fight now over like 900 layoffs from the Medical University of South Carolina. But this mindset is such, and you know, I don't, I don't expect anything else from Elizabeth Warren certainly. But the mindset is is such that you can look past all of the large structures of inequality until you find like a racial or a gender or or a sexual orientation disproportion. And that's like, you couldn't ask for a purer illustration of a neoliberal norm of social justice, right? That uh, Because unless, because from that perspective, unless you can find these invidious outcomes, then people who are getting fucked by market forces ultimately just deserve to be fucked by market forces, right? It's only when... When the nat, well, uh, you know, you know, as it were, again, like in square quotes, natural logic of fucking people over via the market becomes compounded 
with some form of discrimination based on ascriptive status that there's a problem. And I mean, just for the record, I mean, uh, there probably aren't many Warren fans among your audience, but it's worth recalling that she never became a Democrat. What happened was that Bill Clinton brought the Democratic Party to her and made it. Uh, <laughs> she didn't land on Plymouth Rock is what you're right, saying. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> right. So, I mean, he. The Democratic Party landed on her. Democratic Party to fit her, uh, to fit with her pattern <laughs> republic. Pardon the interruption, folks. I know that you guys are enjoying Adolf Reed Jr. very much. It's always my pleasure and my honor to bring him on this show, to talk to you guys, to broadcast his knowledge and insights gained over many, many decades of organizing and activism and thinking and writing to your eardrums each week. Uh, you know, it's it's magical, isn't it? Podcasts are a crazy thing. <laughs> you guys take it for granted. I know you do. Even Even the seasoned veterans out there take it for granted. But it wasn't very long ago that when you were a budding socialist, when you were thirsty, desperate even for the latest insights, for theoretical knowledge, for contextual insight from the likes of people like, you know, Adolf and others, you had to scour the Internet far and wide, just seeking out any video, any transcript, any article that you could possibly find. And nowadays, there are more interviews like this one than you can shake a stick at. And I'm really proud to be a part of that movement that helped to popularize and normalize access to thinkers like Adolf, but that has not always been the case. And I think it's just interesting to kind of reflect on that a little bit. You know, five or six years ago when I really got into left media, I mean, this stuff was rare. This stuff was rare as hell. Go back nine, ten years ago when I first became an organized socialist, 12 years ago almost, this stuff was almost non-existent. And so, you know, we should be thankful that we have access to people like this and not take it for granted. With that being said... Another thing that we shouldn't take for granted is the existence of podcasts like this one. I absolutely require the support of my listeners in order to keep this thing going. Many left uh, commentators, many left podcasters are rolling in dough right now, and good for them, but DPS is a niche show. We're a show that requires something of a, we've got a high bar, high bar for entry, high barrier for entry, and, and I don't like that. I try to popularize these politics. I try to make it available and accessible for the masses but the reality is it's it's a niche podcast it's a niche that i think is going to be growing uh, it's a niche that i think it sorely needs to be tended to but it's it's a risky thing to have a niche podcast because you want to reach as many people as you can you want to have a big as you know as big of an audience as you can it's a risky enterprise but i think it's an important one and if you agree with me, if you think that we need to bring in these Berniecrats and make them principled, seasoned socialists and bring them access to some of the best and brightest thinkers of, of all of the generations uh, alive today, then I encourage you to head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and smash that subscribe button. You'll also get access to our weekly B-sides where we save the hottest hot takes for our patrons, the people who are able to, to process that kind of information. The people that have the prerequisites, as they say, to handle the spiciest takes. Moving forward from the Bernie Sanders campaign, we desperately need to consolidate our gains. We need people to start thinking systematically about political economy, about state theory, about socialist strategy, about uh, revolutionary history, about all of these things. And you know, there aren't a lot of shows they cater to that kind of thing specifically. The massification of socialist politics has been a very welcome advancement 
But with the massification of anything, things tend to get watered down. Things tend to get dumbed down. And that's one thing that I commit to never doing here on DPS. So if you think that you want to support uh, this niche, if you think this niche is important and it needs to be fostered and developed and expanded, I implore you to become a patron today at patreon.com slash dead pundits. You know what to do. So, yeah, I mean, essentially, you know, what, what some people call the holy trinity, race, gender, uh, right. sexuality. You know, the right. holy trinity, trinity uh, it calls for remedies that mar- market logic can bear, right. can handle. Well, right? and, and, and by and, the way, man, uh, I mean, down here, uh, I mean, the holy trinity is uh, chopped bell pepper, garlic, and onion. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. A little different down, down in Cajun country. Yeah. Uh, I prefer that one, to be honest with you. I mean, look, I mean, let's just like, look, we're going to do the thing. Like, damn it, Adolf, I always have to do the thing, Every, especially when I have you on the show. I got to do the thing. All right. Okay. Uh, we got to, I'm going to, well, we're, we're a day after, we're recording this a day after Easter. So I guess, uh, Adolf, you Catholic? Yep. All right. Well, you can help me with this. I'm just a, I'm just a, I'm a lapsed uh, Protestant. So what do you do now? You get on your knees, right? On the little yep. kneeling stool and you cross yep. yourself, right? Is that what you, yep. you do? You go forehead, chest, chest down, you know, and then, uh, you right kiss, chest, you, left shoulder, right shoulder, left shoulder, that, right. You kiss your, uh, crucifix. Right. All right. So I, I just did it. I crossed myself. And, and okay. so, uh, we here on DPS abhor all forms of discrimination. <laughs> <laughs> of course, any type of bigotry, discrimination, all the isms, all the obias that Bernie Sanders got so good at kind of like railing, listing off time and time again, they're disgusting. They're, they're abhorrent. They yeah. are an anathema to everything that we believe in and we stand for, divides the working class, and also just makes people's life really shitty, which is something that we don't like here on the left. Uh, but th- with that being said, right, like the problem is that like it just sucks up all the oxygen in the room immediately as soon as you as soon as you unveil the Holy Trinity. There are remedies that are ready made. There are trajectories. I love that word. I, come, I take it from your writing. People need to use that word more. Uh, trajectories that emerge from this discourse that uh, inevitably lead you into a neoliberal direction. And you really do some base covering here. So let's do that here in this piece. God bless you. Speaking of uh, trinities and crossing ourselves in Easter, God bless you, uh, my child, uh, God's, God's, God's child, for, for having the patience to do this over and over and over again. But I think, you know, we may have a, a slightly new audience since we did the first anti-essentialism series. So let's cover this a little bit. Okay. What is racism in the most basic level that you consider about it? Because the way you, you, the way you explain racism, I am quite certain has nothing to do with the way our friend, uh, Ibram X. Kendi, who is by the way, the director of anti-racist research. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's very simple. I think racism or r- racialism, if you want to make a distinction, is the belief that races exist outside of abstract taxonomies that, you know, the beliefs that races are in some way natural populations, right? That they're populations that occur in some given way between the level of the species and the level of the local breeding population. And in that sense, believing that races are real is exactly tantamount to believing that unicorns are real. And I guess you wouldn't call it unicornism to believe that there are taxonomies of unicorns out there. Well, I guess you could, but right. So the I'm problem, sure there's an internet community for that, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. Well, no. Yeah. And I'm sure that, that, <laughs> that, that like, somebody would be going to HHS to demand the standing, but um, <laughs> no. So from that 
perspective than the the very idea that that races or race is a reference that denotes uh, a naturally occurring population is quintessentially racist. That's what racism means, right? And I know that what's happened is that people um, have come to think that well, racism is the belief that one race is superior to others. But in fact, as my friend Walter Michaels pointed out before we even knew each other, uh, and we came upon uh, you know, the unicorn comparison quite independently of each other, but uh, Walter made the point decades ago, I think, that, well, you wouldn't say that it's wrong or that, that the essence of the problem with belief in u- unicorns is the belief that some types of unicorn are superior to others, right? right? The problem is with the belief that there are these things called unicorns. And race is the same thing. Race is is an artifact, right? I mean, it's an historically specific notion that came into existence um, across a particular, uh, a given period of time and in, in particular sections of the world, right? It's not like you know, leopards, right? They were always around there, right? I mean, so yeah, I mean, that's what I would argue that racism is fundamentally. It's a belief that race is a reference to real populations. Right. So I'm going to give you a chance to defend yourself here. Okay. Uh, Brother Kendi, Ibram X, professor, Mm -hmm. uh, referred to an unnamed abstract person, Uh, you know, just on quick uh, perusal here sounds sounds like he, he could be talking to you directly okay and he describes he describes your ilk as a post-racial progressive right who suggests that we're past that we don't need to look at race that if we look at the economics of the matter we will solve uh, our problems uh, he says uh, that the irresponsible policies of capitalism are the problem not racism as the post racial progressive believes that the malfunctions of poor people of color and capitalism are the problems, not racism as the post-racial centrists believe. And so he lumps post-racial progressives with post-racial centrists, both of whom uh, share the sin of suggesting that racism is not a causative force in society. What say you to those charges and that kind of uh, bizarre distinction to be lumped in with the very people who are trying to stamp out our economic policy platform in the first place. Right. Right. Well, no, I know. Well, in the first place, like the post racial thing, like I have never made a reference to post racialism or post race in my life. So that's a charge that just doesn't fit. Right. And as to whether I see racism as a causal force in producing invidious outcomes, in the society, well, the problem is that the notion of racism is too broad and too elastic to explain anything because it can't explain everything, which is what people like Kendi do. I mean, with it, right? I mean, I've been saying for a good while now that when people talk about racism, it can be helpful to think terrorism because it's the same kind of notion, right? It doesn't have concrete specifics, right? You can't, right? I mean, like, like it doesn't have characteristic that you can nail down and examine, right? That you can find in an autopsy even, you know what I mean? And the big problem 
conceptually or strategically with dependence on racism as an explanatory notion is that it not only doesn't help us identify the mechanisms that produce and reproduce inequalities, it's an alternative to looking for mechanisms, right? Because the demand, right, isn't that we examine at every historical moment where there's an outcome that has blacks on the bottom, what the historically specific mechanisms are that account for blacks being on the bottom in that context, right? Um, you know, the demand is that we call the condition of blacks being being on the bottom in any and all contexts by this label racism. So it doesn't help us explain anything, right? And again, I mean, if, yeah, yeah I don't know that he would lump me or had me in the back of his mind when he constructed, you know, this taxonomy of post-racial types. But I mean, like I said, I've never, yeah, I don't think I've ever used the term except to describe people who use it, because I've never used it myself. Because the notion never made any sense to me. I mean, what is post-racial supposed to mean anyway, right? I mean, that races don't exist anymore, that there's no such thing as inequality. And mind you, like I've never denied that people have racist attitudes. I've never um, you know, denied that patterned inequalities exist that have as at least one of their characteristics racial disparity, right? But it just takes more than saying see racism for it to make sense to summon this really vaporous abstraction in lieu of explanation for um, existing patterns of inequality. And as, as you've uh, mentioned time and time again, it's really the racial uh, disparity discourse is really what's left over when you abstract away history and political economy. Right. No, that's right. I mean, and that's yeah. and that's and that's that, that's what's astonishing in these pieces that you that you cite here in the opening of this argument. I mean, Charles Blow is seemingly more conciliatory to the idea of inequalities, pre-existing conditions coming from the kind of patterns of in, patterns of migration, mm-hmm. you know. And and there's this there's there's a, a whiff of a historical narrative in there. You know, um, um, unlike uh, Kendi's more literary approach, where right. he right. very strangely com- makes this uh, odd comparison between you know the the nineteen twenty seven Great Mississippi Flood and t- people you know read the article at your own risk. It's yeah. cited in your. Oh piece. no, really? Uh, right. It's it's yeah. a, these are bizarre like metaphors and allegories that 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 have way too much uh, you know alleged like explanatory causative, you know, functions in, in these analyses. But Charles Blow attempts something seemingly more nuanced, but then by the end of it, you're just, you're just kind of left wondering what the fuck was he talking about? Cause you're, you're talking yeah, about right. structure inequalities. And I just right. did a word search. I wanted to be double sure. I read it a few days ago, uh, Medicare for all, uh, any, any type of universal social program makes zero appearances in these pieces. Right. Yeah. I'm not surprised. And so how do you, how do you talk about structural inequalities? How do you talk about, you know, um, longstanding pre-existing conditions that are borne by people who find themselves at the bottom of the economic ladder and, uh, only come up with these sort of neoliberal racialized trajectories? It's, it's astonishing. And in fact, I'm not even sure what his, what his conclusion is, what his prescription is. It's, uh, 
It's an article that lacks a conclusion. It's just the existence of racism is just supposed to speak for itself. Well, well, no, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and that's how this goes, which is another tell, right? Uh, in the sense that it's a discourse that's not committed to trying to resolve inequalities. It's a discourse that's all about shouting that they exist. And look, I said this on the listserv thing too. I mean, and I mean, least of all, right, people who work in the social sciences, right, and in a whatever capacity, who would expect to be surprised to find that in any distribution of bad outcomes in the society, blacks will wind up at the bottom, right? I mean, that's that's not newsworthy. So, but well, it's not news. So that how is it that announcing that blacks have it worse does anything for us, right? And it's almost like the logic of mass cultural entertainment, right, where a part of the formula is to proclaim the most commonplace observations as though they were startlingly new and and uh, the revolutionary innovations, right? Because uh, you get uh, the biggest bang for the buck, right? It's it's like the toothpaste, right? It's like the same fucking toothpaste, right? right, uh, right, right. That you claim does some magical new shit. It'll make you fly or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's the same same kind of move. I mean, how can you keep saying over and over and over and over and over, like the conclusion is always blacks have it worse, blacks have it worse, especially to the extent or insofar as, as assertion of the conclusion is also an argument against pursuing any of the strategies that could actually tackle the sources of inequality. So, I mean, that's what tells you it's a class program, ultimately. Yeah, right. So, let's let's do what you just you mentioned uh, some minutes ago that you that you don't like to do, which is to speculate about the future. But how can we not? I mean, we're standing on the precipice of something. Yeah. As I said last week, you know, and I actually recorded this intro to to, to last week's program where we we're kind of doing a, a Bernie post mortem, a retrospective of some of the the, the choices and, and moves that were made on the campaign. I mean, ultimately, the thesis there was similar to the thesis that, you know, a lot most of us came up with with Jeremy Corbyn, which is not that novel at all. In fact, I would go as far as saying it's it's almost kind of a psychological uh, truism, which is to say that the source of the source of your greatest strengths is oftentimes, if not almost always, the source of your greatest weaknesses. Yeah. And uh, some of the some of some of Bernie's pitfalls and the pitfalls of his campaign uh, stemmed from, you know, also his greatest strengths, which is why it's not just so easy to suggest that, you know, well, if he'd only done this one thing. Well, OK, if he'd done that one thing, he wouldn't have had that other thing, which was also his greatest strength, one of his greatest things. The left comes up against this constantly. Jeremy Corbyn has his own set of of things to think about in that respect. And but, but what but what I had said is that, you know, uh, we're staying on the precipice of something. I mean, we're, we're in a moment now where it's beginning to make sense to talk about a before this moment and an after this moment. So, you know, we, that's, that's what I've all, it's just, it's, that's an inflection point, right? I mean, it's essentially just, de, you know, defined, I haven't done anything novel there, just defined inflection point. So we're standing at inflection point. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if it's a coincidence. I don't know if it's historical accident. I don't know if it's kismet that on this, on the brink of this, this precipice where in the left is going to have to decide for itself uh, how it conceives of itself and where to go next that you see this racial reductionism raising its head up once mm. more are the people who have been beaten down rightly beaten down by the success of the universal social policies of Bernie Sanders are those people going to rear their ugly heads again are we going to see another Tanahisi Coates book are we going to see another uh, reemergence a, a second wind 
of right. these of these hustlers in in this kind of uh, identity, you know, industrial complex. Right. Well, I mean, that's a good question, Adam. I mean, I would say as long as there's a mortgage to be paid or like a tennis court to be groomed or whatever you do with tennis courts, then yes, the books will be there. Uh, but but I think you're right. I think that going back to 2016, um, I mean, as Kenneth Warren has argued, I think as eloquently as anyone, that the emergence of the black professional and managerial class at the end of the 19th century was bound up with and, is, and, and has largely been bound up with since, though maybe arguably, I mean, less so in the last half, half century, with the project of speaking for the Negro, right? And it's been tougher since passage of the Voting Rights Act because as Ken also points out that that project from its inception presumed a black population that was mute, right? Because of disfranchisement. Uh, you'd think that the stance became tougher objectively after 1965, but that's certainly when you know, the race relations engineering industry began to diversify. Well, right. I suppose a way to put it. Yep, we're going to be talking about that at length uh, with your son Toure next week. Oh, next week's A side, yeah, of course. That that's really the meat of his book. Yeah, uh, right. In many many ways. Right, uh, absolutely. But you're spot on about that. Just just for the audience's benefit here, I just reached over. I'm sitting beside my bookshelf as you're talking about your uh, your friend Ken Warren. Uh, I pulled my copy of Renewing Black Intellectual History off off the shelf. Oh, cool. And, Great book. Uh, that's a good collection. Uh, came out about uh, 10, 11 years ago now. And mm -hmm. uh, Ken's got a, the opening piece there uh, where he talks a lot about this, the problem of constituency. People should uh, pick up that book. I believe you can get it online now and, uh, yeah, yeah, and check out that, uh, that piece. It goes back. The, the, the two opening essays in that, that collection are as good as it gets for this period, right? You've got uh, Ken Warren talking about Frederick Douglass and the problem of constituency, which you just highlighted. And then you've got the late Judith Stein talking about uh, the political economy of the, of the yeah. Booker T. Washington moment. Uh, yeah. foundational yeah. formative stuff there. Yeah, no, it's true. It's such Judas piece is quite powerful. Also, like for the lit inclined, Ken's book, What Was African American Literature, is really extraordinary. And it's uh, uh and it's short too. But anyway. Mm -hmm. yeah, you, um, you're gonna out me as a is a as a guy who's just not I'm just not I'm not so lit inclined. You, you just out oh, me. Oh, I'm not yeah. either. So <laughs> thanks a lot. Right. I'm just right. a bumpkin That's with shit right. on my shoes when it comes to uh to literary stuff. Uh, yeah, that's well, Warren loses me when he starts talking. Ken Warren, that is, loses mm -hmm. me when he starts talking about fiction because I haven't read any of it. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, well, that doesn't help. Right, right. But I mean, so, but what's happened though is, you know, there's something like a neoliberal race, race relations regime that evolves and, um, or emerged and evolved over the half century after the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Things, Things kind of seem to be going okay, and then um, you know the Sanders campaign did. Uh, I mean, this wasn't Sanders's intention or his primary one, but the Sanders campaign did shine a big light on that contradiction, right? I mean, on the contradiction that those people, you know, from Joanne Reed and the others who talk shit on TV to the academics to the elected officials, who found themselves in a position of actually having to contend that. Programs like Medicare for All, free public higher education, student loan forgiveness, $15 an hour minimum wage, that would have clear, direct, and unambiguous impact 
on making many black people's lives better and more secure are to be opposed, right? And that just puts them in a shaky position. And that makes it all the more essential for them to attack Sanders and a left, <coughs> pardon me, and a left that's identified uh, you know, with that kind of policy program <coughs> as uh, being somehow inimical to the interests of black people, because it is, it's inimical to the interests of black people like them. But yeah, and I think it's, it's uh, gotten a lot more shrill. And I'd like to think that more and more people have exposed uh, you know, themselves for the class commitments that you know, undergird their race politics. But we'll see. Well, you know who else has exposed himself time and time again? Who? Uh, Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> on so, to Joe. On to Joe. On to uh, yeah. Slippery Joe. Uh, so this is, this is the fate. About, <laughs> um, yeah, I bumped into him once on the train platform in, in uh, Wilmington. He was getting on. No, um, he was getting off when I was getting on. Uh, so it must have been a train from D.C. I was going back north. I'd gone down there to give a talk. And this wasn't that long after he'd gotten hair plugs. And it was starting to grow in and looked really pretty nasty. But that's all I have to say. <laughs> Pre-Botox, post-hair uh, post plugs. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, he's hoping he could score with the younger ladies uh, for a little bit longer. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, who doesn't? Who, whom, whom amongst yeah. us? You know, Adolf? I'm mean, just saying uh, he's just a man with a dream. Uh, anyway, man, that's fucked up. I shouldn't say that on air. Uh, the man's a, the man's a documented, uh, uh, diddler. He's, he's a sexual assaulter. It's fucking unbelievable. We're going to have to make a choice between two just all around nasty, rapey guys. Well, you know um, what? Um, I have a good friend here, Ashley. So, I mean, you know, in the 1991 Louisiana gubernatorial race, uh, the contest was between David Duke, the literal Klansman and the literal Nazi. And um, the morally, morally and ethically challenged Governor Cajun Edmund Edwards. And the coalition, uh, the Andy Duke coalition, uh, it produced a bumper sticker that said, vote for the crook, it's important. Right? Uh, and I did a, a play on that for the 2016 election, too. But my friend here just came up with one that says, both for the other rapist, it's important. <laughs> so, so I got to ask you. So, you you set this one up. I was going here, and you probably you probably smelled it from a mile away. Are we going to see a piece by uh, Doctor Adolf Reed Jr. Uh, in the coming months with the title of some sort? Uh, vote for the lying war <laughs> warmongering uh, uh, accused rapist. It's important. Are you going to be so. making this similar kind of argument that was very difficult for a lot of people to to stomach? Leading right. up to 2016, that that people in swing states, especially, are going to have to hold their nose and pull the lever for the Democrat this time around. As they, well, I'll let you describe what 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 was the kind of nuance that you were arguing for there, and do you think do you, do you feel the itch to write a similar piece given given today's context? Uh, I don't feel it now. I, uh, I mean, something might might happen as um, as we get closer to to, to November. I've I've already begun checking in with people whom I consider my principal bellwether comrades about this, and I don't I don't know anybody who's feeling the itch to make that kind of argument yet. I mean, I know a couple of people who are, but I mean, um, well, I mean, I've already said, Adam, that yeah, you know, I'm not even 100 percent certain there's going to be an election, so it's not it's uh, you're not something that we need to or that I feel a need to worry about now. 
I mean, stranger things can happen. I mean, the bottom could completely fall fall out of the economy to the extent that it hasn't already. If Trump goes ahead and follows through on his commitment you know, to reopen the economy on May 1st and people start dying in the streets like it's John Carpenter's uh, the, uh, re- remake of The Thing and things get really chaotic out there, right? I mean, more so than they are now. I wouldn't be shocked to find a bipartisan Wall Street-led consensus that suspends the election. And, and um, you know, like Thomas Friedman was talking about a while ago, uh, I mean, doing a you know, national unity government with all kinds of Republicans in it and, you know, but, I mean, Democrats. I mean, I don't know. I mean, if um, I think this is a qualitatively significant moment. And you know, I just can't say. I mean, Biden, I mean, the only thing that, Biden has had to say, and and I know that I mean, you guys might talk about this when when he's on. But Toure, um, when he was in his mid mid twenties, came up with the construct that, that the main difference between the Democrats under Clinton or, or uh, the Clinton the Clinton era, I mean, Democratic Party and the Republicans was that the Democrats would say, "Me too," but not so much. And with Biden, I mean, that's all there is. There's me too, but not so much. And look, I'll do the same things that Trump is doing, but I'll do them better. I'll do them smarter. Yeah. I'll confer with our allies. So, you know, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. So, I mean, my, my take on this, and it's, it's, it's tentative, and we'll see how this, this thing shakes out. My fear is that Trump is going gonna, is gonna to listen to his betters on this, as he has so far. And I, I'm not even going to give him credit for that. Right. I just think he's in so far over his head. He's just looking to people instinctively because he just has no fucking idea what's going on. Right. I think he's going to con- confer, defer rather, and confer with his betters and, and hold off on the May first thing. I think we're going to hold off a little bit longer, and then inevitably the economy is going to rebound. Yeah, and, and he's going to take all. He's going to take all the credit for that, and he's going to blow right. out Biden because of it. Uh, that's my that's my prediction. Yeah, I think that's the most likely outcome. Uh, above and beyond that, I mean, I think that. In terms of whether or not you know, and I, and I back, I def, I had your back on 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 the Hillary Clinton argument. I really did. When I first read it, I thought to myself, "Oh, for fuck's sake, do I have to pull? Do I have to do this?" And as time went on, you know, I think, I think, you know, I think that you know, um, I think you were absolutely right about that. And I'll tell you why, because I don't think the left in that moment was prepared to make the kind of argument, to make the kind of case, and the distinction that that there there is. We are about on the verge of comprising a, 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 a third political wave, tendency, uh, movement, you know, that we hadn't yet had the power and developed the strength to make those types, that kind of distinction, right? The Labor Party inside the Democratic Party, outside the Democratic Party. And on 2020, in 2020, we're, we're, we're possibly, we're almost there. We're almost there. And I think that um, if we collapse into the Dems in this moment, it would be a terrible tragedy. And I get the sense that Tens of not hundreds of thousands of of socialists and progressives across the country really feel that in their bones. Um, well, yeah, it could be. I mean, I'm with you up to the point. Uh, you know, I'm up to the point about the assessment of where we are. Because I don't think we are. I mean, I think that where we are is um, that the, that the Sanders campaign, and this is one of the reasons that I. Uh, don't have any time for the postmortem on the san- on the campaign. Um, you know the what if, right? I mean, but besides, I mean, what I think the campaign has done, and this was extraordinary. I think because I it's 
it's extraordinary, especially because they were able to do it through the device of a national presidential campaign, was that they've salted the field for us out there, right? So, so for instance, as all the exit polls showed, right, like the Medicare for All idea is a popular one, right? Like in South Carolina, we had more than 13,000 people sign pledges, uh, you know, indicating that they wanted to vote only for candidates that supported Medicare for All. And that was like in three months of organizing, right, or less. And that's something that we can build on um, around the country, right? What the left is now is mainly people like us, right? People who talk to one another, people who in whatever ways you have uh, connections to the ostensibly cosmopolitan hubs around the country. And what we need to do is to figure out, and this is for people everywhere, right, all over the country, that the next step, I mean, I've, you know, I've been describing this as a relay race, right? I mean, the campaign ran the first leg and, and brought us a nice lead. And the next leg is, you know, for us to take the baton and to figure out how to build on this support, this consciousness that there is out there, right, about, uh, about uh, you know, Medicare for all. Because one of the things that we've learned, too, too, in our work in South Carolina is that once the light bulb goes off in people's heads about Medicare for all as um, a more reasonable and appropriate and just way to organize a healthcare system, then other facets of a public good-oriented approach to public policy and uh, you know, the government don't seem that remote to them. But it's going to be like you know, a long-term effort, right? I mean, it's going to be like, it's not going to be a matter of um, electing candidates who are going to bring it about it's not or at least not for more than a couple of election cycles uh, and it's not going to be a matter of, of making the proclamations and the masses falling in and as uh, i'll say this much right as a granted a different kind of political scientist i mean i understand that preferences aren't given right that just because there's broad popular support for Medicare for all across the country now. It's not going to stay that way unless we as activists or militants or whatever can cultivate it and expand it and then connect it with uh, you know, organizing imperatives and agendas. I mean, I think the left, uh, I think the left institutionally is just about as weak now as it was in March of 19. Of 2015. Yeah, I, I will agree with that. I, I was lamenting that heavily on the day that Bernie dropped out. And um, I'd like to say I picked myself up and dusted myself off a little bit since then, but but I'm not so sure. And and, and I think that's something that, yeah, that's that that's something that it was hard. That's hard to swallow, to be honest with you. Yeah. It, oh, it, no, I know. It, yeah. I, you know, yeah. I did. I, I, I'm a big, we, I'm a macro strategic a kind of guy, right? I look at things and I, you know, I, that's what I'm good at. I'm not good at the particulars. I'm not good at the, 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 the minutia, but I think that, you know, I always view things from a, from a thousand miles up and I sort of look at this, like, you know, you got to look at this thing like a chessboard, man. You got to be a good, you got to be a good Gramsci in the best part and not, not in the cultural bullshit component of things, but you got to <laughs> think about these things uh, in the truest sort of like strategic way that, that the way in which sort of the right wing took over. Uh, you know, culturally, politically, and economically over the past 60, 75 years. Well, see, I, mean, I think I mean, that's why being part of collective processes is so important, right? Because nobody's smart enough to figure this shit out himself or herself. And, and I mean, nobody really wants to 
trust himself, right, or herself to be the person that has to make those calls and those cal- calculations. I mean, that's one of the, um, I mean, being raised Catholic, what was a mixed bag, right, right to say the least, but what, one of the good things about it was the, was the practice of having to examine one's, one's conscience. And if you're at all kind of, of you know, self-reflective about this, what, I mean, you realize that's always easy to convince yourself that your sins weren't as bad as you, as one, one might think they were. And that's why it's so important you know, to be engaged in, in your collective processes with people. And plus, that's the future we want to make anyway. Right, right. No doubt. Well, this is, this is definitely the, the beginning of a time of reflection. This is probably a posture that most of us are used to anyway, right? Not, not the, what, what we've been through over the, over the past years is, uh, felt, was a very strange thing in the history of the left. Right. This is, we're, we're back. We're back yeah, in the, absolutely. I hate that we're not, we're not in the naval, naval gazing kind of period. We don't ever want to go there, but we, no. we definitely, we have some time. We have some breathing room right. to That's think, right. right? Which is important. Sometimes you got to think and, and we've got that time. We're taking that time. And as always, uh, speaking of time, you've been very generous with yours, uh, as always. Well, it's a pleasure, man. Uh, um, I love our chat, so this is great. And I hope we get to do it again before too long. Yeah, absolutely. You've got a book coming out here in the next year or so about the history and trajectory of, uh, you know, of all this stuff. And uh, I'm really, really looking forward to it. And uh, let's let's chat soon, uh, as soon as that stuff comes yeah. out. Yeah. All right. Take care, brother. And that concludes this week's A-Side Chat with the great Adolf Reed Jr. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. As I, as I teased at the beginning of today's episode, I'm going to be talking with Adolf's son, Toure Reed, next week about his really phenomenal book that just came out from Verso, talking about the, uh, let's say, the political fuckeration of race reductionism in the latter half of the 20th century. Many fans of the Anti-Essentialism series Part 1 have reached out to me and and mentioned how just utterly blown away they are at how good that book is, at how important it is, at how uh, succinct a a distillation of the kind of anti-essentialism posture that book is. And it is. It's all of those things. I'm really, really excited to talk about that book with uh, with Toure. He's a busy guy. Uh, I've, I've been working to nail that interview down for the past year. And the book's now been out for a month. And I finally got my hands on him. We finally scheduled a date. So definitely looking forward to that. You guys tune in for that next week. As always, there's going to be a B-side this week that's coming out on Friday. It's also in the Anti-Essentialism series vein. I'm going to be talking to comedian and socialist media presenter Anders Lee about anti-essentialism with respect to autism and autism spectrum disorders, I think as they are now called. So that's uh, that's an interesting little spin on things. I don't go into like mental health. If you call that mental health, psychological matters that much on this show. But it really stands at the intersection of biology, so-called biology, and essentialism, much like my interview with Joanna West did. So I know you guys are going to enjoy that very much. If you're not a patron, you're going to miss out. So uh, yeah, Bernie's done for now. We have to go forward and think about how we're going to 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 operate, how we're going to conceptualize ourselves, how we're going to think about politics, how we're going to move forward. And um, I think, you know, it might be a little self-serving, but I think podcasts like this one are utterly essential for for doing that. So if you agree, if you've been listening this long, I, I, I suppose that you do. If you're not already a patron, you have some expendable disposable income in the midst of this 
abject fucking crisis, I implore you to go to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a patron today. We need some solidarity in this time of crisis and you'll be rewarded for it handsomely with weekly B-sides. All right, for the patrons, we will see you on Friday. For everybody else, we'll see you next week.